Janina. Hi, Emma. How you doing? Not bad. How are you? I'm all right. I am in scabby pain because I've spent seven hours today getting tattooed. Oh, yeah. What have you What have you got done? I got now have eight jellyfish on my leg. That is so good. And can I give you some general life advice? Yes. Don't get your kneecap tattooed. <laughs> don't do that. I, uh, astonishingly enough, I don't think I needed to be told that. <laughs> <laughs> it is very painful. <laughs> so that's my life advice for today. Okay. I mean, unless you really want to, because it looks cool and it it does look very cool. Mm. But yeah, that hurt. And I have like very high pain tolerance for tattoos. But but yeah, the kneecap, I was like, oh no, no, no. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Why why have I? Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds bad. Yeah, but that was that was my day. It's very relaxing. Mm -hmm. And my leg is now one hundred and fifty percent cooler than it previously was. That's fantastic. Yeah. So that was my day. It was like my version of a spa day. Like yeah, other people go is... and get massages and facials and I go and get needles put into my kneecaps. <laughs> this is this is the point of any of that stuff is like there's going to be a space of X amount of hours when you're getting a massage or a manicure or a tattoo where just no one can contact you. You yeah, don't you have do to anything. worry that you're going to get an email because you're busy <laughs> and you can't look at your phone. Yeah, or you're just going to have to lie down and nobody can ask you to do anything other than lying down. Yeah. And it's delightful. So, yes, yeah, so that was my day. That's beautiful. And and very nice it was too. And then I, I also thought, like, as I was lying there, kind of scrolling on my phone, while well, my other parts other than my kneecap were being tattooed, I thought I should Google, like, the question today. And our mm-hmm. question today is, why is the UK united? And Google autocorrect, like autofill thing, filled in, like I've typed, why is the UK? Um, <laughs> and it filled in, why is the UK so wet? Why is the UK so depressing? Why is the UK <laughs> so cold? Why is the UK so expensive? <laughs> why is the UK so cold and wet? Like, <laughs> And I was just like, oh, wow. (laughs) The UK, according to Google, is very grim. It Um, is pretty grim. It is pretty grim in general. Also not particularly united. (laughs) And legally, it's extremely united. Mm. Mm. Legally, England, the largest country, ate all the other countries. Yeah. And they cannot get free. They cannot get free, no matter how hard they try. Yeah. And yeah, so today's question comes from Asha Chahan Field and is not why is did England the largest country not just eat the other countries, which is what I wrote down. Because <laughs> uh, I think I'm funny. Uh, but why is the UK united? So we're going to go through from the beginning of the creation of England to today and talk about how... England ate all the other countries yeah. because it's that is basically what happened. Worth talking about what all the different names mean because I think people get yes, confused because well, basically it has about 10 different names throughout the yeah. different times. Technically the name of the country right now is uh, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Yeah. So Great Britain just on its own refers to the mainland mass on which sit England, Scotland and Wales. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is at plus Northern Ireland. The whole thing is sometimes called the British Isles, which includes all of the little islands around England and around 
Britain and also Ireland, which mm-hmm. stresses out Irish people a lot. Because they do not like to be included and who can no. blame them? They fought a lot of wars, which we'll get to <laughs> towards the end of this. <laughs> so we're going to start from the beginning and then we're going to basically do a history of all of the kings and queens that absorbed various countries and all of the things that these islands have been called yeah. over the past kind of 1,100 years-ish. Yeah. Because you, along with most European countries... They were not always a country. No. <laughs> and for large parts of British history, English kings ruled bits of France. Yes. Up until John, the useless the, the king. The lift of France used to be English. Yes. Mm. But it's one of those things that I think is very confusing, particularly for people who didn't grow up in Europe. Because, like, for example, I'm from New Zealand, and New Zealand was discovered by colonists in, you know, 18-whatever, and just was New Zealand. And obviously yeah. before then, it had been different Maori iwi, which is tri- tribes is not only a word that colonizers use, it's not, it doesn't even translate properly to indigenous yeah, people. Yeah. So iwi is what we would say who have like the concept of who owns land and what land does and what your relationship to the land is, is so different that there never, it never would have been a country. It's just, yeah. Groups of, you know, you, you, the attitude is different. So it was, New Zealand became a country when it was discovered by the English and it has always been ever since then static. Yeah. Whereas UK in particular, but Europe in general, is extremely fun because it's very old. And the word country means about five different things, depending on the context. Yes. Uh, (laughs) And places became countries, as we understand them today, at really different times. (laughs) Yeah. And in different ways. And there was shifting and there were kingdoms and city-states that merged and changed. And it was all very complicated until all of a sudden everyone noticed that other people were doing countries and had nationalist crises. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and people came, and there, obviously there were lots of empires which then fragmented, and we've had many wars over this, and some of those wars still go on today. Yeah, one of them occurred where I live. <laughs> <laughs> but for as far as England is concerned, it begins in the year nine two seven, specifically the twelfth of July nine two seven which is what I will now be celebrating as the glorious 12th here in Belfast. Uh Just personally, everybody else will be celebrating the Battle of the Boyne and I personally will be celebrating 97, the creation of England from the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, of which there were seven, Mm -hmm. under the auspices of the great King Athelstan, Mm -hmm. King of Mercia, who punched everybody real hard until they agreed that he was the king of all of them. He is the son of El... Alfred the Great? Yes. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to say yes. Is that sort of, see, okay. If I'm Full wrong disclosure. about that, you can, you can take your problems to Rex Factor because that's where I get my knowledge yeah. at this period. Full disclosure, everything I know about English kings and Scottish kings <laughs> comes from Rex Factor. And English queen and prince consorts. And, or, yeah, and English queen and prince consorts and then whatever they do in season four, everything I know comes from <laughs> Rex Factor. I now know... Four billion percent more than I previously knew before I started listening to X Factor, which was the name of about three kings. Yeah. And some guesswork about numbers. If I remember correctly, and again, when I say it, when I remember correctly, I am talking about if I remember Rex Factor correctly, Alfred the Great gets the name of the first king of England, but it was his son, Ethelstan, who actually did the consolidating of yeah. land and power. So it's a bit 
It's a misnomer and situation. Burn some cakes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But from so he consolidates officially, twelfth July, that's when it was created. Athelstan decides that England exists. And England goes up to approximately this kind of goes back and forth like a lot so these are very approximate borders mm-hmm. but approximately the river tweed to the north in scotland and approximately what is called offers dyke which was built in 757 which is the kind of border of wales mm-hmm. and there are lots of kind of blurry bits there which we're not going to go into because we'll be here all day if you want the history <laughs> of wales then you'll have to ask us for a history of wales and thus it remains pretty much as English until the Norman invasion in 1066, when there is a big argument over who has the right to the English throne, because mm-hmm. there were some Vikings that ruled for a while, some Danish kings. And then there's about 18 different people who will claim that they own the throne to England and William the Conqueror he becomes William the First, rolls up and shoots everybody and wins and mm-hmm. then brings over a huge number of aristocrats and people and starts parceling out land all over the show. Yeah. And he pushes uh, the borders into Wales a little bit further. Notably, most of those land owners that got given land by William the Conqueror, their families still own. <laughs> that land and if you go back through kind of big landholding families you're going to find they go back to Norman conquest and they will consider that to be a great thing about them and everybody else would be like mm, pretty sure other people own that land and I don't think that one family should hold it for a thousand mm-hmm. years but sure a thousand years seems has- a bit much and what about the actual Britons yeah no. or just you know maybe share it a bit yeah. maybe a bit of sharing mm. And so England has remained pretty much as England is the same since then. There's been some wibbling with the Scottish border, right? There's loads of wibbling with the Scottish border, which we will get to, and it kind of wibbles up and down. Mm. And there's kind of constant going up and like back and forth across the rivers. And there is lots of occasional splits. So you've got a fair, you know, fair few civil wars going on. The big one is the... Oh, what's it called? Not the catastrophe. The anarchy. Anarchy with Matilda and Stephen from one of one of my top three favorite shipwrecks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> one of your top three favorite shipwrecks. We should do an episode on your top three favorite shipwrecks. <laughs> well, one of top them is five. the is the Titanic. Uh, yeah. So that one's, um, that we don't need to talk about that. Everybody knows that you can go to a museum. It goes back and forth, but the kind of the what the shape of England and what England is is always the same. And England always has constant access to continental Europe in a way that Scotland and Wales kind of have a more that gets more complicated. Mm. And so they're always the more powerful of the nations. Wales is um, not consolidated. Wales until. The 13th century is split into three or four little kind of principalities. My understanding of essentially Wales and Scotland before England becomes England is that when the the Saxons invaded, they basically pushed the Britons to the west and to the north. And maybe to the south. So there's there's some British, like ancient Britain heritage in Cornwall, I think, and then Wales and Scotland. Is that right? That is the the narrative, yes. Mm. How far that narrative, like that would involve everybody just sort of getting up and running away to Wales or to... But it's more likely that the 
influence just kind of spreads less to the corners, basically. Mm. Because when people invade, they either come from the top, really, or they come over from continental Europe. So Anglo-Saxons come kind of down. (laughs) Basically, when people invade England, Cornwall and Wales are always the furthest away. Yeah, so they just don't bother going that far. Yeah, or they just get there less. Yeah. And they also always have a connection, a very close, easy back and forth connection to Ireland. (laughs) And so there is always a continual flow of people, information, culture between Wales, Cornwall and Ireland and and like Scotland, the top of Scotland, like they're all very close. So they have when like Anglo-Saxons or Normans or whatever come in, then there's more mixing of cultures on that edge if you see what i mean sure (laughs) then there is on the edge that has norwich in it (laughs) that's that's how i describe countries edges (laughs) this this is fair it makes sense yeah this is my west of france i know it (laughs) my left of france but yeah but wales is remote basically the english kings are more focused on conquering bits of france and fighting with france perpetually Mm -hmm or being French, or on fighting with Scotland, because Scotland does become a a proper kingdom kind of much earlier. They have what's called the old alliance with France. They have constant diplomatic relations with France. Mm -hmm. Very the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Exactly, constantly. And they also have constant stuff going on with the Danes. Mm -hmm. Like they're always fighting over who gets to own the Orkneys or whatever. And so, whereas Wales is sort of left to its own devices for a long time <laughs> because it wasn't really causing that much trouble, I suppose. But it all comes to a head in the 13th century. It begins with um, Henry III because a guy from one of the principalities in Wales called Llewellyn. <laughs> that's my Welsh thing. Um, <laughs> it was very good basically had invaded all of the other little bits of Wales and had tried to consolidate it under his own reign. Mm-hmm. And Henry III said, okay, I will agree you, you can be the Prince of Wales. Like You're the Prince of all of the territories of Wales. Mm-hmm. And I will recognise you as the leader of all of Wales and you will get like my patronage as the King of England, which is a much more powerful, richer position. But you have to give me homage. So you have to come and pay homage to me. And he only, like, he was not then allowed to be the King of Wales. It was just yeah, you were the Yeah, he had to be the Prince of Wales. So he'd always been beneath the King. <laughs> and he had to, when necessary, come and pay homage to the King of England and agree that the King of England was his, like, superior. <laughs> and Llewellyn signed this in 1267. It's called the Treaty of Montgomery. I was kind of chill, living his life, and was everything was fine until 1274, when everybody's, if anybody out there is a Rex Factor listener, you will know who's coming, and it's Edward the First, mm-hmm. everybody's favourite castle building lad, <laughs> uh, and everybody's favourite baddie from Braveheart. <laughs> Described in this document you've written as not a chill dude. Not a chill dude. (laughs) Notoriously unchill, I would say. Like genuinely quite frightening in a lot of ways. Edward I simply never heard of the concept of chill. No, he was like, that looks like a thing. Can I have it? (laughs) So 
there was some tension on the borders because people kept defecting from Wales, from Llewellyn, to and going to Edward, and Edward was harboring them. So instead of sending them back or, I don't know, setting them up in their own house somewhere, he was keeping them in his castles and chilling, hanging out with them, doing whatever it is that Edward did in his spare time. Presumably not chilling, but something yeah, that felt... Absolutely not chilling. Like, <laughs> I don't know, maniacally laughing in corners. <laughs> Striding around on his long, long legs. Yeah. So he, he's he's basically harboring them and protecting them so that nobody from Wales can come and kill them. His like father-in-law had also built some castles on the borders that were stressing people out because they were like, mm, why are you building castles near me? <laughs> and he... Then call, in 1274, he demanded that Llewellyn came to Chester and paid homage, so bowed down before Edward. Mm-hmm. And Llewellyn was already had his back up about all of this, so he said no. Edward, as I say, not a chill dude, not a dude <laughs> who was like, eh, God. But a dude who liked to fight people was like declared war on them and fought them and defeated them and basically rampaged across Wales. That was the beginning. It was kind of a miniature rampage, Mm -hmm. which lasted a couple of years. He signed a settlement in 1277 and was like, look, you've learned your lesson. Don't fuck with the English. Mm -hmm. Do as you're told. Pay homage and everything is okay. Leaves Llewellyn on the throne. Everything is kind of okay until... David, Llewellyn's brother, rebels, starts the war again. And this time Edward is like, absolutely fucking not. Just kills everyone. And rolls in <laughs> with a, like his entire war machine. Manages to... Wales is always a, a difficult place to conquer because it's so kind of hilly and it has very difficult terrain to get mm-hmm. when you're marching. It's not that easy to get across. The Romans didn't like fighting there and Edward didn't like fighting there either. But he continued. He... Trapped and killed Llewellyn and had David executed as a traitor in England, which is a bit much. It's a bit much. He was like actually <laughs> being loyal to his country. Uh, he's being very loyal to Wales and was not at the time. <laughs> he under was not an pa- English citizen. He was not <laughs> a traitor. He owed no loyalty to. I mean, to again, Edward. similarly to not understanding the concept of chill, it would does not understand the concept of people not owing loyalty to him. No, he does not. And he he thinks everyone in the world owes loyalty to him. Like, he genuinely considers everybody on the island and probably everybody in the entire world to be his inferior. Mm. And that's how he treats them. So he then, having killed basically the entire family, previous ruling family who had taken all of Wales under their auspices, he colonised it. And this is kind of the beginnings of proper English colonization bullshit mm. because he does exactly what William I did. He carves up Wales and distributes it amongst his friends and family. He evicts lots of Welsh people from their lands and builds big houses and castles all over the country. Oliver has written that Wales has more castles per square mile than any other country with over 600 castles in the entire thing. That's Um, a bit much. (laughs) And it does have all of the castles that if you were to imagine a medieval castle or draw a picture of a medieval castle, you would be drawing probably one of Edward's ones. Mm -hmm. Like if you Google Carnarvon Castle, it's huge, it's got turrets, it's got moats, it's castly. Oh yeah, that's a hella castle. Look at it. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a great castle and it is a proper, like it's a child drawing of a castle. Yeah. I mean, it's very definitely a castle as a fortress, which I feel like yeah. if your image of castles is based in fairy tales, which mine mostly is. Those are the Bavarian ones, yeah. Right. But yeah, it's very, very... It's a it's, it's a castle ass castle. Yeah. It's not a Disney castle, it's a fortress castle. Yeah. But it's a great castle. And this is what he built all over Wales. He then makes Wales technically is a separate nation, <laughs> but it is under the leadership of England. And it remains that way from twelve eighty two to until about fourteen hundred. When there is a big revolt by Owen Glynth, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, Glynthweir, um, who revolts against the English domination and the fact that English people have basically come in, kicked all of the Welsh out and are treating the Welsh like shit. Classic. But they are not doing that under legal power. They are just doing it because they're, because they're English. <laughs> It's the equivalent of like lads going on any any yeah. lads weekend out in Europe. You know, yeah, just doing and they go out English. and they boom and they shower people and they do a funny accent and they laugh at the Welsh for being Welsh. Yeah, and yeah. So he kind of fourteen hundred. He does a massive revolt. The revolt is. Successful for a while, it's a guerrilla war, it goes quite well, but eventually it fails and it leads to the enforcement of what are called the penal laws. That does not sound fun. It is not fun. And again, this is another thing that the English become very, very good at in (laughs) uh, other countries that are not England, which is making the Welsh legally inferior to the English in all ways. Mm Mm-hmm. So Welsh people can no longer prosecute English people in a dispute, any kind of legal dispute between an Englishman and a Welshman, the Englishman will always win. In any situation, a Welsh person can no longer own land in English towns. Mm. So this is really where they set the blueprint for like the continued disenfranchisement of colonised peoples, right? This is where they start obliterating language. It's where they start inhibiting so they don't actually start obliterating the language for another hundred years <laughs> oh wow so they're like you can say what you want you just have no legal power mm. so basically they're just completely legally inferior and there are lots of laws that mean that they can't own specific things and they can't and as a welsh person like there are english colonies basically in wales that are built by the people that Edward gave the land to <laughs> that are English towns with English law within Wales. So that then stops Welsh people from owning property within that or running businesses within that. And they also can't move to England and own property, <laughs> which is fun. Yeah. Good for good for everyone. <laughs> yeah. And that continues until 1535 when our friend and yours, Henry VIII, eliminated Wales as an entity. (laughs) Just like, no, you're not real. Literally, yes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Partly because Welsh law, the penal laws in Wales and having a separate legal system in Wales that he ruled, and it being a separate 
kind of country had become too confusing for him. Sure. I mean, he's got so much on his mind. Yeah. He doesn't have room for it. (laughs) And he also, this was part of his reorganization of the entirety of the world, basically, after he left the Catholic Church. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, uh, you can, you know, practically see Ireland, which remains Catholic from, or remains mostly Catholic. We'll get to that in a minute. From Wales, he's very concerned about the flow of traffic going backwards and forwards between Ireland and Wales, and he wants to secure that kind of border, basically, mm-hmm. and shore it up. But are largely because. Welsh law had got very confusing. He instituted this two laws called the Act of Law and Justice in like form as it is in this realm, 1535-36. And then in 1540, you get that Act for Certain Ordinances in the King's Dominion and Principality of Wales. Right. And these dissolved Wales as a specific entity of its own and made it into a principality as part of England. Sure. This is when the language was enforced. Uh, Then Wales becomes part of the Kingdom of England, like it loses any legal name. So England is still called the Kingdom of England and Wales is just part of it now. Sure. Is that also when the heir to the English throne begins being called the Prince of Wales? I actually don't know when the way uh, to the Prince of Wales, but possibly probably around that time. Mm. But I imagine it will be around about the time of the Act of Settlement. But sure. if this is around about the time that people start getting real stressed about, the <laughs> <laughs> about who the heir is. Like, real stressed. But, yeah, so he... This is when Wales gets seats in Parliament and does make the Welsh as a people legally equal to the English. So it does have that going for it. They now are no longer considered to be inferior legally or they're just considered to be inferior in general. That is, again, another hallmark of global colonisation is that we will steal all your land and in return you can be a subject of the crown. In return you get to come... And listen to some debates. <laughs> There's yeah. a load of posh people. It's great. <laughs> and so that is basically how Wales becomes part of the Kingdom of England. It is it's Big Henry, the biggest Henry. As <laughs> he is also responsible for... Like Henry VIII, I hadn't quite realised, really was personally very responsible for the absorption of a lot of what eventually became the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. Like, he was mm-hmm. very keen on getting everything under his belt, his very large belt. Yeah, basically, the moment he started taking stuff away from the Catholic Church, he was like, I'm just going to take everything that's here. Yeah, and very much like, and also because that put him in such a bad position in terms of his relationship with everyone else in Europe. Mm. He goes from being, you know, the Prince of Hearts, a handsome, young, striding man, to everybody's worst enemy (laughs) who (laughs) just declared himself, like, bigger than Jesus. So he feels he needs to consolidate as much power as he possibly can and as much territory as he possibly can and also break up any potential ways that people can invade him Mm. and so wales is a potential weakness so he pulls it under his cloak and then scotland is also a potential weakness and so is ireland and so he also acts in both of those territories in order to make them more english 
<laughs> Ireland is because Ireland had also been being colonized for quite a long time by this point, yes. right? Like it, it's the the crown has been stealing willy patches of Ireland yeah. for a long time. Yeah, so Ireland has Vikings there, obviously. Uh, the Normans kind of have a go, but it is Henry II who really goes in and properly invades it, but he creates the Lordship of Ireland, is what it's called, mm-hmm. which is really just a small bit around Dublin. It does, it's not a significant part of the island, and the rest of the island is doing its own thing. Sure. But it is... Henry VIII, again, in 1542, passes the Crown Act of Ireland and creates the Kingdom of Ireland as a monarchy ruled by the monarch of England as a client state, basically, Uh of England, ruled by... Legally, the monarch is Henry, but it is administered by a viceroy, much like the viceroy that they put in India. This is also like a a, just a bigger version of how... Ireland was dealt with in general, right? Because you have all of these British, English lords being given property in Ireland that they don't want to take care of because they don't want to go to Ireland. So it's ruled over, it's administered for them by land managers who run it into the ground. Yes. So he basically decides, declares kind of single-handedly that Ireland is a kingdom now, that he rules the kingdom, that there is, he Dublin Castle is the centre of English power in Ireland. He sets up a parliament in Ireland, not the Dáil, but uh, like a, a Tudor parliament. Mm-hmm. He invents the Church of Ireland, which is the Church of England in Ireland, um, that makes him the head of all of the things. Mm-hmm. And then he initiates a series of conquests. So he basically declares, he does it backwards. So he declares a kingdom and then starting from Dublin Castle, pushes outwards. Right. And you, you get throughout the Tudor period and then into... The Stuart period, you get lots and lots of uh, wars of conquest because Ireland is not a country under one king. It's got lots for the most part, and it has a lot of different kind of aristocracies across the island, starting with Henry and then through Mary and Elizabeth and James and Charles. They push through, they basically dissolve the monasteries, ban the Catholic Church, Mm-hmm. murder everybody that they can see, <laughs> ban Irish as a language, ban Irish clothing, if you remember when we did clothing, mm-hmm. brutalise and force into serfdom the people that were living, the Irish people disallowed them from having a religion or being part of the people that ruled them. And then they do plantation, sure. which is a thing that they only really do in Ireland where they specifically take... English and eventually Scottish Protestants and move them wholesale as massive communities into the island of Ireland. Right. Mostly around Dublin and in Northern Ireland. And this is going to come back to bite their descendants (laughs) very hard. Um, And that is like what I now live with. But we're going to come back to that after we have done Scotland. But that is throughout the Tudor period... The Kingdom of Ireland is technically a client state of England. It is not part of the country as a whole. It is a colonised space Mm -hmm. in the same way that eventually India will be. Yeah. And that is how it is treated. And it is treated as though it is a space full of kind of barely human Catholics who need to be 
eliminated as much as possible. Yeah. The Tudor conquests eventually end in kind of 1607 with what's called the Flight of the Earls. It's a great when, a great event name. <laughs> it is a really good event name. <laughs> it is um, the kind of last Earl standing, mm-hmm. who is Hugh O'Neill of Tyrone, which is in Northern Ireland and is where my husband is from. He leaves Ireland with the last remaining contingent of his followers 90 of his followers they go to mainland europe and there is some debate as to whether they were exiling themselves or whether they were going to spain to ask the spanish to help them invade ireland and take it back sure but either way the spanish did decided not to help them in the end (laughs) decided that they were not going to join in by 1607 you've got a lot of other stuff going on obviously (laughs) It is not recognised initially as a kingdom until Mary I becomes queen because Mm -hmm. they won't recognise, the Pope won't recognise a Protestant nation. (laughs) Right. But when Mary briefly comes back and Mary is Catholic queen, the Pope says, okay, you can be the Queen of Ireland as well. That's cool, that's cool. This is going to be fine now, that Protestant thing is over. And then every other (laughs) Protestant king afterwards gets to basically uh, piggyback off of the fact that the Pope briefly recognised her and he can't really take it back. I really Uh, like the um, refusal to, like, support an Irish country that has been taken over by a Protestant one until the Protestant country happens to have a Catholic queen. (laughs) Yeah, very briefly, there's a Catholic queen and everyone's like, oh, phew, that's over. (laughs) And we can stop this ridiculous thing where we prosecute Catholics and persecute them and try to burn them out of their houses. Yeah, we can start doing it to Protestants instead. And then, yeah, and then Elizabeth gets the throne. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, so that is kind of an, an Irish interlude. So now the country, as of, say, 1607, is called the Kingdom of Ireland and the Kingdom of England. Right. So. So two separate kingdoms, one of which is subservient to the other and ruled over exactly. by the same monarch. And they have the same monarch. So it's a personal union is what it is. Mm. So technically all of the kings after Henry or and queens, as we get them, are king of England and king of Ireland. Mm. And that then they work under a personal union and they twiddle their thumbs and everybody is happy. And that is a semicolon there. And we'll come back to it (laughs) because we have to take a detour to Scotland (laughs) because that kind of stays like that for a while. Whereas Scotland, there's also stuff going on. There's a lot going on. There's so much going on. We're going to bang through it. <laughs> and once again, there is an entire Rex Factor series on Scotland. Yeah. Which I would highly recommend. It's great. I did not know until I listened to the Rex Factor series on Scotland that Macbeth was a real man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did not know. Yeah. Uh... Also, the whole bit in Macbeth where they go to see the witches and the witches make a big deal about how Banquo's sons are going to be king. Yeah, so it's because Banquo is yeah. uh, an ancestor of James the First of England, and yeah. he was king when Shakespeare wrote Macbeth. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. learned so much, and and uh, Scottish kings die in the best ways. Yeah, also Robert the Bruce, the best king ever of anywhere. <laughs> I don't know. He didn't like die in a hole surrounded by tennis balls. So. This is well. This was my main takeaway from Rex Factor so far: is that the kings you think are awesome are usually not that great, and the kings yeah. you think are not that great or have never heard of might secretly be awesome. And the one yeah. exception is Robert the Bruce, who is exactly who you want him to be. <laughs> he is exactly as awesome as you think he is. He lived in a cave for a while. He talked to spiders. Yeah, and... he came back and kicked a lot of ass. 
Yeah. It's a good time. Yeah. Right, so Scotland, while all of this has been going on in England and Wales and Ireland, Scotland has remained an independent country. It is the Kingdom of Scotland. It has its own king. Mm -hmm. It's very happy. And when I say happy, I mean it's just fighting each other itself, largely. Scottish kings die in hilarious ways, relentlessly. (laughs) And at one point in the Rex Factor series, there was a colour-coded family chart because there were so many people who claimed (laughs) to be the king of Scotland um, and who wanted to be it. But apart from that, they largely were being their own kingdom and having their own problems. Like every country that has a monarch has some kind of disaster with like four brothers who all say that they're the king or whatever at some point. Mm -hmm. And like everywhere else, it used to be like different groups of people who slowly over time consolidated into one unified kingdom. So there's, you know, this is not a clean way to start a country. It's not. but And it constantly is in a power struggle with England. Yeah. Officially, Scotland is founded in 843 and immediately started to fight with the English. Sure. As is right and correct. (laughs) Pretty much immediately started what's called the Old Alliance with the French so that there would always be the potential threat that if England got too big for its boots and started genuinely coming for Scotland, that the French would step in. There would always be the threat that France would come for them. So... It's a balance for them, basically. They've Mm. always got their big brother France that they can bring in if they need to. And they hang around harrying the North and have a a nice time. And they harry the North and the English sometimes harry them and back and forth and so on. Yeah. Until 1306. And what occurs is this is kind of largely what is covered by the bad, bad film Braveheart. That they may take our lives, but they'll never take... I mean, it's bad, but it is fun. It is a terrible banger. <laughs> I mean, I... obviously, it's it's not so fun now because we know how terrible Mel Gibson is as a human being. But yeah, but it is like a riot. Yeah, a nonsense, um, a, non- a pile of nonsense, just from start to finish. But culturally, it does have. Just the notion of Mel Gibson riding up and down the horse, shouting, "They'll never take our freedom!" Right. And for that, it was worth it. Yeah. Also, the guy who um, plays Robert the Bruce, I remember as being very hot. <laughs> I don't remember who plays Robert the Bruce. I really only remember the freedom bit. Neither do I. I just remember thinking he was really hot. And Edward is extremely evil. So evil. He is like a like a evil hypnotist evil, like creeping around being evil with the word evil stamped on his head. It's great. But basically... It begins because there are so many people in Scotland who claim that they are the king and they all have a fair, near enough equal claim to be the king of Scotland that the Scots call in Edward I. I think it is worth saying that this has happened because the king of Scotland rode through the night in a storm to sleep (laughs) with his wife and fell off and broke his neck. Yes, he did. Yeah. 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 Again, I say, as I say, the Scottish really do die in amazing they die ways. in amazing, ridiculous ways. Yeah. Um, so the king has died while attempting to shag his wife. <laughs> and being too enthusiastic on a horse while trying to do that. And so there's left them with a load of people who all have all near enough equal claims to the throne and no one can agree who is the king. And they, at time, they don't have a strong enough church to kind of overrule the situation. So they make the worst possible decision. <laughs> yeah. So they ask Edward, King of England, who should choose. He makes a decision. He like hears everybody out and makes a decision. Everyone's like, all right, cool. Uh, but then it becomes very clear 
that Edward considers Scotland to be a vassal state and that by choosing their king, they have agreed that he is the boss of them. Yeah. Everyone in Scotland disagrees very strongly. (laughs) (laughs) Which, as as they should. And that is my entire description of the Scottish War of Independence. (laughs) (laughs) The Scottish disagree with Edward very strongly and there is some nasty fighting and back and forth that eventually ends with Robert the Bruce versus Edward II, who is not anywhere near as good as Edward the first Bannockburn Robert Bruce wins and they manage to basically eventually come to an agreement yeah there's just so many battles I don't care about at all (laughs) (laughs) I mean battles with broadswords are a little bit more interesting than battles with guns and things you say that, but they're still like, oh, and then on the left flank, and then on the right flank. Oh, yeah, flank, no, we don't need then... that. We just, want, we just want a well-choreographed hand-to-hand fight. Even then, I don't want it to be longer than 60 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, fair. Give me the highlights. <laughs> there is a second war of independence. This goes on for like 50 years with the constant fighting between England and Scotland eventually ends with the Treaty of Berwick and everybody kind of agreeing to calm down, largely because there's no one left to fight. (laughs) And that leaves Scotland and England back in the same situation of there being a kingdom of Scotland who's friends with France, who notably did not come that much to anybody to help anyone, but still. And England is England and is messing about doing stuff (laughs) during the 15th century until you'll never guess who... Henry, Henry the <laughs> always here to get involved, just sticking his fingers into all the pies. Yes, Henry the Eighth, having this is now fifteen forty three. So you'll remember in fifteen thirty five, he decided that Wales didn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. In fifteen forty two, he decided that Ireland was a kingdom and he owned it. Mm-hmm. In fifteen forty three, he pretty much decides that he would actually quite like Scotland as well. Yeah, a greedy boy. (laughs) He is. He starts some more battles and eventually in 1543, he persuades the Scottish to sign the Treaty of Greenwich in which the Scottish agree to make peace. They promise that they definitely won't fight the English ever again and that their infant Queen Mary, Mm -hmm. pretty much just been born, will marry Prince Edward who goes on to be Edward VI, their son of Henry VIII, and that there will be then therefore a union of the two kingdoms and in the children that will come from this marriage of a baby and a six-year-old. <laughs> there will eventually come, there will be a union of the crowns and then that child will be the king of both places and the crowns will be under one and it will be lovely. And Henry's very pleased with this. And once again, the Scottish are not very pleased with this (laughs) because they're like, that sounds like England is going to absorb us. (laughs) Like a big Kirby. It is. It is what it sounds like. And so they go home, like the people who've negotiated this treaty kind of go home. This is going to come up again with Ireland and go, we've negotiated this treaty and everyone in Scotland is like, this fucking sucks. (laughs) One, we do not want to marry our tiny queen to that monster's child. Two, we do not wish to have a king eventually who is also the king of England. We quite like being independent, actually. It's our thing. We fought loads of wars over this. Why have you done that? And they refused to ratify the treaty. Yeah. 
so Henry starts what's called, and I love this term because it's so awful, the rough wooing of Scotland. So horrible. Because what he wants is for them to for he basically wants to force the Scottish Parliament to betroth Mary, Queen of Scots, to his son. Mm. And they do not want to do that. And so he attacks them and violently invades them over and over again and harries the shit out of them until they send Mary to France. Just to keep her safe. <laughs> to keep her safe. And this is again part of Henry wanting to consolidate everything so that nobody can attack him. He wants Scotland to sign a treaty to say that they promise they will never join up with the French. They promise they won't attack him. They promise that they won't ever, 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 ever go to war against lovely Henry. And <laughs> they promise so hard that they'll give him their queen. And and uh, they disagree. And yeah. so on that one, he loses. But he tries very hard <laughs> and eventually the French do have to intervene in order to stop the rough wooing and basically be like look give it up and it ends in 1551 and everything there is kind of a tense piece I would say yeah but Mary Queen of Scots does not make things easier <laughs> <laughs> blame her like you can't she is i maintain kind of a rubbish queen yeah but when it comes to england she did nothing wrong when it comes to england she did nothing wrong. When it comes to scotland she did not rule it well <laughs> but she turns up in scotland eventually as an adult as a catholic queen of a now very protestant country now very presbyterian country goes badly she eventually has to flee to england and elizabeth who is her cousin puts her in jail forever until she is caught trying to escape and possibly overthrow because she says she has a claim to the throne and she is executed hmm. which is a whole big thing yeah elizabeth then dies with no heir and the only heir is unexpectedly <laughs> the son of mary queen of scots yeah. so it turns out that henry does get his wish and scotland starts becoming part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain because it has a personal union under James the Sixth of Scotland, who becomes James the First of England. Yeah. And James immediately, having ruled Scotland for quite some years since he was an infant, he has been king of Scotland. Because someone chopped his mum's head off. Yes. Well, since they overthrew her and kicked her out of the country. Well, yes. And then she's not she's not queen when she's in prison, sorry. That is fair, I guess. It's difficult. <laughs> it's challenging. <laughs> it's challenging. And also when you're literally chased out of your country <laughs> by your own countrymen who are trying to kill you, like you're not ruling those people. Yeah. Should have just gone back to France and hung out. <sighs> would have had a much nicer time. She would have. But she, yeah, she can't get to France. <laughs> but anyway... James, having been King of Scotland for ages, gets made King of England, gets into a carriage, legs it to London so fast you can barely see him move, and never goes back to Scotland. <laughs> and no king ever returns. He then leans incredibly hard into turning the personal union into a real union. And this is where I find it very, very funny to do my horrible troll opinion. <laughs> And it is extremely funny to, with a very straight face, say to Scottish people, yeah, but James VI was your king and then he came to become the English king and then he was very... So didn't really the Scottish invaded the English? 
<laughs> they don't like it at all and it's very funny yeah and then you have to say sorry but it's worth it <laughs> but he tries so hard like he designs the union jack he really he starts to refer personally to the country as great britain and ireland he writes he a whole can, church of england bible he does he like he tries so hard he asks the english parliament to call him the king of great britain and they're like no <laughs> uh, <laughs> So he, because he doesn't have as much power in England as he does in Scotland constitutionally, he forces the Scottish to do it. <laughs> so in all of the like paperwork and decrees and whatever from Scotland, he is the king of Great Britain and they very grumpily have to do it. But he, it won't work in, in England. They're like, no, you're the king of England and the king of Scotland and the king of Ireland, like, accept it. <laughs> <laughs> In 1606, he tries to force an act of the union through English Parliament and it fails. Like, they basically don't want Scotland. Then there is that that whole civil war thing and not a lot's going on because people are distracted yeah. by chopping the heads off kings. Mm. It, is, it, then, t- you know, it takes your attention away from other things. It's yeah, natural. But then my personal favourite beloved, Charlie too, mm-hmm. comes back and brings lovely hair. And parties. And parties and mistresses and shagging and dancing and he in 1667 tries to force through an act of the union and tries to persuade parliament to to make england and scotland into one kingdom and he is denied then there's another civil war (laughs) which we call the glorious revolution and eventually in 1689 william and mary Mm -hmm. try to force through another act of the union and this time they are denied. This time, the ink, the Scottish Parliament are all for it because no one has talked to them. <laughs> so they're like, maybe if there's an act of the union, people will remember we exist. It basically, like, no one comes to visit us, and it, we've been very neglected. And like, the roads are terrible. And, <laughs> like, if you could, uh, and at that time, the English resisted and were like, no, we don't want it. But in 1707, under Anne, Queen Anne of the Favorite. The Treaty of the Union is finally passed. Mm-hmm. It's not passed easily either way. This time England is kind of all for it. And in Scotland, is a, the Scottish people are against it, but the Scottish aristocracy are for it because the Scottish... At this time, by this time, 1707, we are well into the age of colonisation. Mm-hmm. And England has become very, very rich, much, much richer than Scotland because England has colonised so many places mm-hmm. and has got so many overseas territories that it is the money is pouring in and they're beginning to industrialise. Whereas Scotland has no real exports and also has just had a badly failed attempt to colonise Panama. <laughs> Yeah. Where they sent over a load of colonists, they tried to set up a Scottish trading port in Panama and were forced out by the Portuguese. So basically they want to just be able to tag along with England's colonisation efforts. Yeah. Mm. Or just like what everybody else is doing. Like, you know, obviously the Portuguese, the Spanish, yeah. the French, everybody is colonising. Yeah, everyone's yeah. at it and they kind of they want to join in. This is where the money is now. Yeah. And they put so much of their money like so much of the like capital of Scotland um, <laughs> and the aristocracy was put into trying to set up this this trading port that failed that England that Scotland has gone completely broke like the Scottish aristocracy has nothing and it has no way of making more money and it because they are bankrupt and because they 
then have basically humiliated themselves on what is now a global stage. The Scottish Parliament have no feel like they have no power to fight off the English, like who now want them. <laughs> because the English are now like, oh, I will take any land we can get. So there is a Scottish people in general hate the idea, and there are attempts at kind of uprisings and things which never take off. But the Treaty of the Union is passed, it is ratified by both, and Queen Anne becomes the first queen of Great Britain and Ireland. And that is how Great Britain is created. <laughs> It is long and agonising. Yeah. And so much of it is down to kind of weird European geopolitics. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, there's always a lot going on. Yeah, More there is think. always a lot going on. And then this is, the, you know, kind of what's great about history. Okay, last bit, which is that that is not what the country is called anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Currently called the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. And Northern Ireland becomes Northern Ireland in 1921. So it is just over 100 years old, which was a fun thing to be talking about. It has been a client state since 1542. Mm -hmm. It has been thoroughly colonised, or not thoroughly colonised. The kind of eastern half of it has been thoroughly colonised by plantations. Mm Mm-hmm. There are two big power bases for the English in Belfast and in Dublin, but the rest of the country has some plantations, but is mostly landowners, English landowners with Irish people who do not own the land. Tenant farmers who in uh, a lot of cases, because the English, like there's this vision of the English landowner as a paternal figure in England. It is not the case in Ireland. <laughs> no. They parcel up those that land into such tiny farms that the farmers who work it can't afford to feed their families. Yeah, and everything is taken. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. In 1800, its status as a client state was officially ended. Mm-hmm. It was collapsed and it was formally merged into Great Britain. So Ireland stopped being a kingdom and was folded into Great Britain. So for a while there, the country was just called Great Britain, mm-hmm. which included the island of Ireland. Right. Which happened because in 1782, the Parliament of Ireland had written their own constitution, mm-hmm. um, which the English did not like at all. <laughs> And they were like, uh, don't remember saying that. I seem to remember that, no, that we're calling you the Kingdom of Ireland, but it was all just, you know, don't, we, don't be doing that. Yeah, we make the rules. Yeah. Even worse, and this is the thing that genuinely got the wind up, the English aristocracy was the French Revolution in mm-hmm. 1789, which scared the hell out of them and prompted in 1798 the rebellion of the United Irishmen, which was supported by the French, mm-hmm. which was the kind of one of the earliest coordinated attempts to kick the English out violent. Yeah. And it was brutally, brutally put down as everything that ever happened in Ireland was. Like, (laughs) when anything, anyone ever tried to push back against English power, they pushed back times 100. And they didn't, like, they had brutally put that down. And the English partially blamed unionists, so Protestant unionists in, in Ireland for how bloody it was because... They retaliated against the United Irishmen very harshly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
And the final thing that prompted them to collapse Ireland into Great Britain, uh, is, and I sort of love this, is that <laughs> when King George III could not rule because he was mentally ill, <laughs> they had to work out a legal regency so that George IV, Prince George, was Prince Regent, but not King. Yeah. And doing that for two kingdoms was so stressful that they decided to just eliminate <laughs> Ireland to eliminate the mother. <laughs> we just can't be bothered working out the details. <laughs> yeah, like it was stressful enough. Like l- the legal process of working out the regency so that uh, George had the ability to do the things he needed to do as king yeah. without being the king for England was so hard that then having to do that also for Ireland now that it also has its own parliament and its own constitution was so complicated <laughs> that they were like no look we can't do this <laughs> and so it was absorbed into Great Britain the parliament was dissolved the viceroy was ended and instead the what's called the Anglo ascendancy in Ireland the Protestant aristocracy had to go to England and be MPs in England <laughs> which nobody liked no it doesn't sound fun no and obviously terrible things uh, happened in Ireland over and over again which we we'll maybe do another episode on one day yeah but it kicked off the beginnings of the uh, home rule movement and the desire for Ireland to be ruled once again from Ireland yeah. by Irish people and by the 19th end of the 19th century that had become very very strong yeah I mean the English had demonstrated pretty clearly that they could not rule in a way that kept Irish people healthy and happy well I mean they treated Irish people and and (laughs) Ireland as a place that that was not made of humans basically yeah Yeah. Um, that's a good way to put it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they, you know, they they treated the Irish people as they treated most people when they turned up in the country as being subhuman or at least kind of a lower form of human as people who by their like you know enlightenment race science gave a lot of people the language in which to start talking about inferior peoples Mm -hmm. and unevolved peoples and it allowed them to write off things like the great famine which is um 1845 i mean they caused the great famine yeah (laughs) and it allowed them to you know not and you know if you ever read what queen victoria said about the irish and how hard she pushed to prevent either relief to the irish or any kind of home rule then you'll understand why irish people are rude to english But legally, home rule bills start to appear as kind of legal battles in the 1890s. First in 1896 and then 1892. They are defeated over and over again by first by the commons and then by the lords because... Because Ireland can't gain a majority in parliament, right? Yeah, yeah. And also because there is a very, very strong, loud, vocal rich and armed contingent of unionists Mm. in particularly in ulster which is so there's if you don't know there's four counties in ireland of which ulster is the one at the top and then there is leinster munster and connacht Mm -hmm. and they're the four provinces and each one has counties within it and there Mm -hmm. are nine counties in ulster which i'm not going to list because i don't remember them all but uh, (laughs) (laughs) because there's nine counties in ulster but ulster is where most of the 
plantations were put under the Tudors and then under the Stuarts. And there is a very strong contingent who do not want to not be part of Great Britain. Yeah. And so when the third bill comes up to Parliament, the Ulster Covenant is signed where half a million Ulster Unionists swear that they will uphold the Union by any means necessary. And in order to demonstrate that they are serious about this, they form the first paramilitary, which is the Ulster Volunteers. Mm-hmm. And when they start making movements, the British Army refuses to move against them, which basically makes any enforcement of home rule impossible because yeah. if you're going to give Ireland a parliament. This, then we get World War One breaks up, but by this time, things like the Irish Brotherhood and Sinn Féin have started to emerge. Mm-hmm. And there started to be the strong feeling in parts of Ireland that you needed armed uprising in order to force the English out. That the only thing that the English understood was violence. Yeah, which is fair. That's a fair assumption to have made. <laughs> yeah, and that any political arguments had failed, basically, and that it was necessary to use England's own tactics against them. So in 1916, you get the Easter Rising, which was very brutally crushed. Mm. But there was a first attempt to start a, a kind of genuine political movement or political state in Ireland. In 1918, my personal hero, Constance Markiewicz, becomes the first woman ever elected to Westminster Babe. as the Yep, as a Sinn Féin politician for Dublin St. Patrick's. She does not take her seat because she objects to Westminster. And as a result, it is Nancy Astor who gets remembered as the first politician. And she was a Nazi, so fuck her. (laughs) But Constance Markiewicz was really the first woman, the first ever MP. This was also what she ran on, right? Sinn Féin politicians were running on the promise that they would not take their seats because they didn't recognise... The authority of That's what the Sinn Féin still run on, yeah. yeah. They run up here for elections and there's several Sinn Féin politicians and they run on the basis, if you vote for me, I won't go because mm. I do not recognise Westminster as a legitimate authority yeah. in the island of Ireland. So yeah, so she won, she didn't go. She also is the first woman in the whole of Europe to become a minister yeah. in the Dáil because she's great. 1919, there was the first war of independence. If you've seen Michael Collins, then... Mm-hmm. You've seen that. If you've seen the meme of people writing down names, then that's Michael Collins. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I always think about in Michael Collins is the bit where Michael Collins holds up a newspaper where there's an account of someone being riddled with bullets by the IRA. And he's like, we don't have enough bullets to be riddling yeah. with. <laughs> one bullet down. <laughs> Do you think they grow on trees? <laughs> so good. Yeah. Dublin detective riddled with bullets. Riddled? Riddled? What are you going around riddling people for? Ten or twenty bullets from the one we do. Just wanted to make sure he would get up. Oh, Jesus, lad, we just try and remember they don't grow on trees. What don't they grow on? Trees. Get out. Yeah, got Julia Roberts doing an appalling accent, eh? Mm-hmm. But Michael Collins basically leads a war against English power in Dublin Castle in Dublin uh, forces the English to negotiate with nationalists Eamon de Valera sends him over to negotiate there's all lots of debates about that he negotiates that there will be a free state in on most of the island of Ireland but that England and Great Britain will keep hold of six of the nine counties of Ulster this causes a civil war between Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins because Eamon de Valera rejects it and a lot of people want the whole island of Ireland, yeah. including unionists. But basically, Ulster unionists are 
loud (laughs) and they desperately do not want to be part of Ireland and that was considered to be a halfway decent compromise in 1920. So 1920, the British government of Ireland is passed on the 3rd of May 1921, Northern Ireland as being six of the nine counties of Ulster, which are decided by the Ulster Unionists in Westminster. And they are chosen because they are those with the largest Protestant populations. Mm -hmm. The three that are left to the free state or which they give up basically are those with the largest Catholic majorities Mm -hmm. so they basically say like monaghan has too many (laughs) catholics in it and we can't we don't think we can rule them and we don't want it so Mm -hmm. they basically refuse to have it and that goes as well as you think it does (laughs) (laughs) but basically that is the point that brings us legally to the points that we are at now which is that the country that we live in is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland being six of the nine counties of Ulster. Mm-hmm. The final piece of legislation which made, which kind of changed Northern Ireland's position-ish slightly gently is the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, which repealed the 1920 Act because the 1920 Act maintained a legal claim to the rest of Ireland. Right. And in the wording of the 1920 Act, it said that Great Britain kind of maintained a moral claim to the rest of the island. Mm -hmm. And so as part of the compromise that is the Good Friday Agreement, they gave up that language and gave everybody in Northern Ireland, if you're born here or if you live here for long enough, I'm coming up to my living here for long enough. Oh, nice. Then you can claim yourself to be either British or Irish or both. (laughs) So you can, you do not have to have a British passport if you don't want to. You don't have to have an Irish passport if you don't want to, but if you want to, you can have both. And equally, the Republic of Ireland, as it is now, gave up their constitutional claim to the north of Ireland. Mm -hmm. So they agreed to remove from their constitutional language that they had a claim. And the language in both now is that Northern Ireland belongs to the United Kingdom until such a time as the people of a majority of people in Northern Ireland agree peacefully that they no longer wish that to be the case, Mm -hmm. which is gentle language (laughs) a gentle a gentle language to end decades of violent conflict yeah so but basically the history of the united kingdom is largely violence and people not wanting the english near them and the english just battering (laughs) until until they're too tired until they're too tired yeah big old chunk of ireland managed to fight them off and the scottish have kind of did their best there with a, mm. a, a referendum. And now we do have devolved parliaments in every one of the parts of England. This is where the word country becomes interesting because they're often referred to as countries. So England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. Yeah. But they're also not countries. <laughs> so they're technically devolved territories of yeah. one country, which is the United Kingdom. Yes, but they could. We also have like various laws. So Scottish law is different to English and Welsh law, which is different to yeah. Northern Irish law. It causes lots of problems, like the fact that Northern Ireland is like abortion isn't isn't legal there because it is legal now. Oh, it is legal now. When did that 
happen? That's thoughtful. <laughs> it happened a few years ago. It happened because we did not have... We don't have a government at the moment, so Northern mm. Ireland does not currently have Stormont, which is our parliament, in sitting because Sinn Féin won the most seats at the last uh, oh, election. nice. And the DUP, who won the second largest amount of seats, who were also the only party to refuse to support the Good Friday Agreement, <laughs> were uh, refused to be deputy minister, basically. Mm. But previously... At the time, we didn't have a government because Sinn Féin refused to sit with the DUP because the DUP were being investigated for something called the RHI scandal, where <laughs> this is such an old thing. They had passed some laws to do with clean energy that ended up with them being able to make money by filling barns with wood pellets and burning them. <laughs> And because they refused to admit any culpability and they re they refused to really acknowledge the thing at all, Sinn Féin was sit refusing to sit. So we didn't have a government for ages, so nothing was being passed and technically the head of the civil service was running the whole of Northern Ireland. <laughs> and so as an attempt to force the them to go back to work, the Westminster said, look, if you don't go back to work, then we're going to make abortion legal. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't go back to work, so abortion got mainly <laughs> outstanding. Yeah, there's no still no abortion clinics, but mm. but that yeah, that's how abortion got mainly legal. <laughs> <laughs> that's outstanding. I love it. Uh, yeah, it's a silly wee country, but it is. Yeah, and so that is how and why the United Kingdom is united, and a surprising amount of it is because Henry VIII felt stressed. <laughs> Henry VIII. Got a little bit greedy and yeah. could not be well, held back. He declared himself the head of the church and then was like, oh God, no one's going to like this. <laughs> Best consolidate as much as possible. Yeah, so that's that's that. Yeah, well. Thank you to Graham and Ali from Rex Factor for teaching me everything I know. <laughs> for doing all the research for this episode. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. The, or the entire show notes is just Rex Factor seasons one, two, and three. <laughs> and... Also, because I'm a Privy Councillor, all of the Privy Council episodes, which are also great. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, go listen to them. And, yeah, next time, Janina, we're going back in time, though. What are we talking about next time? Next time we're going to talk about the Ptolemies. And this is a question from Paul Wright with a very nice, simple question. Mm -hmm. What is the history of the Ptolemies? Great. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That one is going to have so much incest. <laughs> The tone of your voice as you said that was really <laughs> great. Yeah, like just more than we, either of us ever would want to enjoy. <laughs> but yeah, that's so that's that's the UK. That's it. That's, that's the UK. Yeah. If you if you want to ask us something or if you want to support us, you can do that at history60.com. The show notes, show notes, such as they are. Uh, links to buy merch, links to our coffee. To coffee yeah, buy us a coffee. Yep. And yeah, and that's about it. It's all there. Yeah. You can find all of the links. I've put all of the links there now. So um, nice. yeah. And until next time, Janina. Bye. Bye. This fucking sucks. <laughs> <laughs>